Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 12. I know we read in 1 Corinthians there, and it is a parallel passage with one of the points in our message, one of the things God talks about, but we'll be in Acts chapter 12. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you remember, Peter has been delivered from his death row prison cell. Uh, I imagine King Herod is likely still fuming over God's miraculous deliverance of Peter, And uh, we're going to start in verse 20 this morning, and in verse 20, we find King Herod uh, having left the capital city of Jerusalem for, I guess, what would be in our day kind of like a political photo op trip. Uh, Herod is now at his royal seaside resort in Caesarea, and if you're there, let's go ahead now and read Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 25. It says, and Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, they desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, and he made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he had not given God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And let's pray before we study this verse by verse together this morning. Father, we now come to your word, what we sung about it. This is the wonderful words of life. Um, your, your ancient words are what transforms life, and I pray that's what would happen here this morning, that as we study uh, your truth and as we um, yield to the Holy Spirit and his illumination of this truth for us, um, that, God, we would, we would glorify you by doing it, whatever it is you're asking of us. If there's something in our life that needs to be changed, maybe some way we're thinking, some way we're talking, some way we, we've been conducting ourselves, Uh, Lord, I pray that would happen, that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, experience good from your hand, and give you glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the end of chapter 12, uh, it is another historical genre-type passage, but not without some life-transforming application, even for you and I. Uh, Verses 20 through 23, they uh, detail for us with fairly graphic description Uh, the destruction of a monarch, of King Herod. In verses 20 and 21, give us the context. It says, Herod was highly displeased. And, you know, it seems that uh, that was the consistent emotional state of this ruler. If we think back to every description we've had of him so far in the book of Acts, uh, can you think of anyone like that who, who lives their life in a state of being highly displeased all the time? No, no out loud testimonies. Um, 
I mean, this guy, he lived in a state of being highly displeased. Like King Herod, his uncle before him, uh, or King Herod the Great, his granddad before him, this King Herod, King Herod Agrippa, he was pure evil. He's a cantankerous individual, wicked. And according to verse 20, uh, the current recipients of his high displeasure were the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, those were Phoenician cities just north of Caesarea, where we find King Herod staying in this passage. We're not told why in these, <laughs> these short uh, five verses. Uh, there are historical documents from this same time period that may give us a clue. Tyre and Sidon, they were important maritime shipping ports on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, whatever they had done to make King Herod mad, it seems that he retaliated with sanctions. He would refuse to use their port facilities had a very negative economic impact on them. Uh, the Greek word, words translated as highly displeased here uh, in verse 20, they actually imply a threat of military action. King Herod was intending war with these two cities, and it's in the rest of verse 20 that we find out that there were some government officials from Tyre and Sidon, uh, that they sent a diplomatic entourage to King Herod at this point while he was in Caesarea. Uh, we're also told that they befriended, possibly bribed, uh, a fellow named Blastus, who's a very close advisor to King Herod. Uh, it's called the Chamberlain here. King Bla or Blastus was called the Chamberlain to King Herod. Uh, now, that might be unusual for us because that term literally indicates kind of like a butler who was in charge of the king's uh, sleeping quarters. But do you realize that, I mean, in that culture, um, that would be the royal leader's most trusted person. Uh, much more than a simple servant. If you think about it, it makes sense. He would be entrusted with the security uh, of the king when he was in his most vulnerable state, kind of like a head bodyguard. And the reason that this diplomatic entourage was sent to try and change King Herod's uh, attitude toward them, make him less highly displeased with them, that's given at the end of verse 20. Their country was nourished by the king's country. While Israel had agricultural surplus, Phoenicia did not because of their coastal location and geography, not really suited for raising crops. They needed King Herod and they needed Israel to provide them with food. Now, according to verse 21, um, they arrived at where King Herod is, it says, on a set day. Uh, in Luke's brief record here, he, he doesn't go into details. And once again, you can fill them in with historical record. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus wrote that this set day uh, was a special festival that King Herod was throwing in Caesarea. It was a day to celebrate and to honor the Roman emperor. And they would do that with theatrical acts and stadium games. At the start of the festivities, Josephus describes what Luke does here in verse 21. King Herod came out to the stadium that morning to take his seat on the throne. Uh, stadium filled with people, and Herod had a very special outfit on um, God has Luke describe it here as he was arrayed in royal apparel. Josephus is a bit more specific. Let me quote from the historical record of Josephus here. It said, King Herod put on a garment wholly made of silver, had a wonderful texture. Early in the morning as he came into the stadium, the silver of his garment was illuminated by the reflection of the sun's rays, so resplendent as to spread horror over everyone that looked on him. Now, why does King Herod wear something like this? Why do people typically wear outlandish outfits? What do they want? 
attention. <laughs> yeah, and at least specific to this case, why would King Herod want attention? What is at the root of seeking attention for something in this context? Pride, yeah, pride. Now think about it. In all of King Herod's problems that, that we've learned about so far in the first 12 chapters of Acts, uh, from murdering the disciple James uh, at the beginning of chapter 12 um, to really hit, hit he and his family's three-generation-long record uh, of even killing other family members to prevent threats to their power and, and position, uh, to living uh, life in a constant state of being highly displeased all of the time. Pride is the cause. And we find out in verses 22 and 23 that King Herod's pride is also the cause of this monarch's destruction. Now, that much is clear. Uh, but can I make a quick application here? We need to be so careful, Christian, of pride. Be, be so careful that you do everything you can to not put yourself in a context uh, or situation where you might be tempted with pride. King Herod didn't. He loved it. Uh, he loved attention. He would do anything, murdering James, uh, imprisoning Peter with the intent to murder him. He'd do anything if it would make him look good, if it would give him popularity, if it would increase his power and status. Now, as a leader, he, he should have been vigilant to guard against pride. King Herod should have read and, and applied all that happened to other kings in Israel when they didn't guard against pride. How Hezekiah's kingdom was taken from him because of pride. How even a godly king, a man after God's own heart, like David, could fall so far and so fast because he wasn't vigilant in guarding against pride. But Herod didn't. As a leader, he, he, he was in a continual context where the temptation for pride was dangerous and should be guarded against, but in everything he did, he just made it worse dressing like he did here, uh, positioning himself on that throne where, where the sun would come in and, and make his little silver outfit uh, all the more magnificent and, and glorious. You know, um, pride is something that we all struggle with from time to time. Pastors, pastors struggle with it. Uh, now, graciously, God gives, he's given me some uh, humbling experiences Sometimes on a funny side, right? We were at Bible study yesterday, and uh, we were talking about the magician that's coming for Awana. And uh, Alan Ramsey mentioned that one time we had a magician here and he did Awana, and then he just did something for y'all on the Sunday night service. And, and my good friend Richard Sibbett said, well, we don't need a magician here. We got two clowns that are up there every Sunday night. <laughs> I know he's just doing it in good fun. And, and it reminded me of... Uh, uh, a little illustration my grandfather told. It was a, a little boy, and he came to church, and uh, he tried to give the pastor the money. And the pastor said, no, 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 you know, we're going to have offering here, and uh, wait, wait till they come, and you drop it in the plate. And uh, the little boy said, no, I'm not going to do that. I, I want to give it to you. And he said, well, if you don't, don't want to drop it in the plate, just give it to one of the ushers who's going to pass the plates. He says, no, I need to do. I need to give it to you on account of what my dad said. And he said, well, what did your dad tell you? And he said, my dad told me you're one of the poorest preachers he ever knew. <laughs> and uh, you can be humbled sometimes. You know, pride is a sneaky, uh, insidious sin. It really is. And, and when I say insidious, what I mean is um, slowly accumulating. You, sometimes you don't always know that it's coming or, or that you're struggling with it. 
Uh, sometimes pride manifests itself, of course. We, this is how we typically think of it in uh, self, self-exaltation. Uh, you know, sometimes pride manifests itself in, in self-doubt. It does. Um, whether you're thinking a lot of yourself or whether you're thinking less of yourself, what are you thinking about? Self. Thinking about self. And, and Herod just made it worse. At the end of verse 21, it says, King Herod made an oration unto them. Now, we're not given the content of the speech by Luke here. Uh, historical records tell us that uh, Herod was a, a great orator. Most politicians are. It's kind of tough to get elected without being able to communicate well, uh, regardless of whether or not what is communicated is true or not. Um, but this, this must have been some kind of speech here. Uh, based on the reaction. Verse 22 says, the response from the people was a great shout. And they all exclaimed, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. Because we serve a sovereign God, the, the one true God, who's in total control of everything, including who's in positions of powers. Uh, what do you think God thought of everything going on here? And whether or not the crowd was being genuine, I don't know. We have to remember that in this crowd was that delegation sent from Tyre and Sidon um, seeking to gain the king's favor. I I figure they probably would have said anything, uh, even, oh my goodness, King Herod, we have never heard a speech so glorious from such an amazing man wearing such magnificent apparel. And in fact, it's clear, you, you are not just a man, you must be a God. And actually, that's what Josephus writes in his historical record. The response from the crowd was, you are a God. Be merciful to us. For up until now, we have reverenced you only as a king, but from here on out, we own you as a superior to mortal man. You know, from God's word, uh, this much we know. There comes a point in time for God when, when his calls to repentance, his overtures of mercy and grace, when they are continuously rejected, there comes a point in time when God has had enough. And we see such a point in verse 23. It says, immediately the angel of the Lord smote him. Why? What's it say there? What was the reason? Because he gave not God the glory. And then the rest of verse 23, it describes the smiting with specificity Uh, King Herod was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. That's gross, I know. Um, Luke, uh, God has Luke be fairly graphic here in regard to the form of Herod's death. I I don't think unnecessarily uh, there's a lesson in it. Um, When you think about it, the manner of King Herod's death is exactly parallel to his spiritual state. Pride had corrupted him from the inside out. It always does. And I don't think that there is a a more dangerous sin, Um, not that we should ever categorize sins unless God does, uh, but but I I believe his word does Um, when it comes to pride. What was the first sin? I'm not talking about Adam and Eve. What was Satan's sin? Pride. I mean, what literally turned angels into devils? Pride. Well, what was the first sin? Let's talk about Adam and Eve. Uh, What plunged um, the entire, uh, it is good, according to the creator, what plunged the entire cosmos into decay and corruption and evil and entropy? It was pride. It wasn't taking a bite of an apple or whatever fruit it was. It was pride that, that questioned God. 
It was pride that allowed the devil's question to dwell in Adam and Eve's mind and lead to their rebellion. Hath God said? Yeah, God had said. They shouldn't have dwelled on that. If that was Adam and Eve's response, instead of, um, well, come to think of it, that it looks pretty good. I bet it would taste pretty good. And the serpent said it would be good for me. God didn't. God said it would result in death. But um, if that was their response, yes, God has said. Well, we wouldn't be where we are today. But that, that is what we, and I mean you and I, that's the exact same thing we do every time that we yield to temptation and sin. We, we do this exact same thing uh, that Adam and Eve did. Um, we let that wicked sin of pride put us where we don't belong, uh, in the place of God. And, and while we know what God commands and desires of us, we just like them decide, no, I, I'm gonna choose what is right for me. I will be the master of my life. Instead of trusting in God's goodness, that are the basis of his commands, you and I, we believe Satan and self, and we decide what's best for us. At the root of any sin, I mean, you pick it, you, any sin, it's pride. It's a sin before the sin, you could say. And because it is a sin, the eventual result, when it's unaddressed, when we won't recognize it, when we don't allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to move us to confession and repentance, it's the same result as it is for King Herod here, corruption and death, and maybe not with the same immediate effect in our lives, but with the very same spiritual and physical consequences regardless. What is the message to us here in these graphic three verses? Turn from pride to Jesus, unbeliever. Christian, guard against pride. That's the message here. That's the message from God to us in Proverbs 16, 18, where it tells us that pride goes before a fall, before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. I mean, God is repulsed by this sin. Pride is such an assault on his glory. God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise, the glory and praise that's do me, and to do me alone. I'm not gonna give it to carved images, and he won't, and so we shouldn't. Don't leave pride unaddressed and let decay grow. Uh, hear, hear the true voice of God in his word and leave pride right here, right now, this morning. Now, there's a change in tone, but, but really with the same theme, uh, the voice of God in the last two verses of chapter 12, and they give us a description of multiplication. Verse 24 describes for us the actual voice uh, of God for you and I. What's the voice of God for us, Christian? It's right here. It's in the Word of God. It is the catalyst that, that God has designed and directed us to use for Great Commission multiplication. What is the book of Acts all about? It's about the continuing work of Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit through followers of Christ. We could describe that sentence I've said repeatedly as we've gone through Acts. We could, we could describe that in three words. The Great Commission making disciples, leading people to place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, and then being used of God to help them grow in their faith. Uh, that's making disciples. That's Great Commission involvement. And that only happens one way. God has designed that to occur through one and through only one catalyst, the true voice of God, and that's the Word of God. Amen? 
This is how people get saved. Nobody, nobody has gotten saved apart from the Word of God. This is how people grow in their faith. That doesn't happen any other way. That's why this book is so special and precious to us. It's how we come to faith in Christ. It's how we continue, how we grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. It is what the Holy Spirit uses to prevent us from being conformed to this world, and it's what he uses to transform us by renewing our minds, the Word of God. And I sincerely hope that, that what verse 24 describes, I hope that's a testimony of all of our efforts here together at Dublin First Baptist Church. This should be our mission, uh, our vision, our joint pursuit. The Word of God grew and was multiplied. Isn't that something? What, what does that mean, the Word of God grew? Well, I suppose literally, yes. Um, it was in the first 100 years of the early church that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew and John Mark and Luke and John and, and Paul and others to write each and every word of the New Testament for us. At this time, the Word of God was literally growing in that manner. Now, that's done. Um, but that's not what God's talking about here at all. Well, when God has Luke say the Word of God grew and multiplied, what God means is that the number of those who were converted by God's word, the number of those who, who professed and embraced the gospel, uh, the number of those who were born again, who got new life in Christ here and now and, and eternal life, the number of those who started the lifelong process of being molded into the image of Jesus Christ, they grew and multiplied. And you can see all of that being perfectly and completely synonymous with the Word of God growing and multiplying because it is the Word of God and it's only the Word of God that does that and, and can do that, that can save a soul, and that can uh, help a Christian grow in, in their faith. Only the Word of God. Do you know that you can be, um, you can be highly devotional on Sunday and... Uh, highly dysfunctional on Monday. You can. Um, and that's because um, we come here and we celebrate God's love for us. And the love of God is a wonderful thing and it's a basis for our relationship with him. But, but the love of God in itself, it will not rearrange a disorderly life, a dysfunctional life. Uh, the love of God is to lead us to the wisdom of God and help us understand the wisdom of God. And this this is what transforms lives. This is what God has chosen, what the Holy Spirit uses to do that. You know, um, the sad thing is there's been a, a terrible deviation from God's design. It is not hard to point out uh, the consequences in the modern American Christian church when this catalyst right here, when it's abandoned for other strategies. And we can see that. Uh, I see it all over the place, and it breaks my heart. When pastors and church leaders, and quite possibly with the best intentions, when they put this catalyst for Great Commission success on a back burner, uh, when the Word of God becomes less important than whatever else it takes to fill pews or to fill offering plates, what's the result? Well, sometimes there's a fake multiplication. Numerically, you might draw a big crowd. There might be some uh, financial benefit, but there's no life change if this is abandoned. There's not. Uh, that only happens, life change only happens when we use what God has told us to use, this catalyst right here, for what he's told us to do. The Great Commission, multiplication. 
Um, when, when this is minimized relative to other things, when, when sermons become nothing more than self-help seminars or, or TED Talks, uh, when pastors don't obey God's word and preach the whole counsel uh, of God, but, but instead just select a few verses that are, are sure to be a hit sermon series, or, or when they avoid tough passages that may offend someone, do you know what happens? Not real Great Commission multiplication, I'll tell you that much. I mean, you, you might have a full house numerically, but honest, honestly, the result is a full house of professing believers who, as Pastor Vody Balkum says, they love a Jesus they really don't know very much. And there might be exciting programs and worship song set lists and lighting effects and a million other things that can draw people in numerically and emotionally, excite them for a week. There's no life transformation. Do you know how almost impossible it is anymore to get professing Christians to attend a worship service where God and God's word is the only attraction that's offered? Where this catalyst for Great Commission success, it's at the focus. It is a forefront. Well, we'll be here. It will be here. I know that's a commitment of all your pastoral staff and your diaconate at Dublin First Baptist Church. And it's our commitment because we wholeheartedly believe God's word. That this and this, this right here, the word of God is the only God-ordained catalyst for you and I doing what God has commanded us to do. To make disciples. If we want to see true, devoted to Jesus, lives transformed disciples, we have to depend on the Word of God. We have to use the Word of God, and that might not be popular to this world, but, but listen, it's powerful. It's powerful to pluck people out of, uh, out of this world and into Christ's kingdom. Charles Hans Spurgeon said that the, the church that the world likes best is sure to be the church which God abhors. And God's opinion is my concern. I hope it's yours as well. When, when we do the Great Commission God's way, when, when we keep this as our catalyst, well, it works like it's supposed to work. It works like the book of Acts. We see a cultivation. Um, Barnabas and Saul, in verse 25. Barnabas and Saul, they return to Antioch, where they have been ministering. They return there from Jerusalem, where they had taken that financial love offering for those in need. But this time, they bring along John Mark. Let me tell you, verse 25, that is a great commission, plain and simple. Inviting other people to walk with you as you walk with Jesus. That's fulfilling a great commission right there. Um, showing them what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's how we teach them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. Uh, and we see a parallel in Jesus' parallel, uh, we see a parallel in Jesus' parable of, of the sower and the seed. They're using the catalyst, the word of God, the seed. Paul and Barnabas here, they are cultivating the ground in John Mark's life. They're helping him to grow in his relationship with the Lord. Just like they had been doing and would be doing with the Christians in the church in Antioch, we see a parallel in that passage we read together this morning in our scripture reading time. Sometimes, uh, as, as a follower of Jesus, you will be called to be like Paul uh, and, and your, your mission and your ministry is just to plant a seed in that person's life. And, and sometimes your ministry will be that of, of Apollos. It, it'll be to cultivate. It'll be to water that seed that's been planted. And that's our mission in fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples, inviting other people to walk with us as we walk with Jesus Christ. And when we faithfully obey, when we use this catalyst that, that God has commanded us to, 
We're going to have assured success. Just like it said there in 1 Corinthians 3, God, God giveth the increase. Always. That's how it works. And there might be one here this morning, and um, if you had to give a, a genuine or realistic description of your life, spiritually dead might be the best, the best one, the most accurate one. There's, you can't look back on a time in your life when you, when you actually, there was a moment, there was a watershed moment when, when I said, I need Jesus Christ as my Savior. If you've never done that, I invite you to do it right now, even as I'm talking. Confess your sin to him. Place your trust you know, in, in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross to save you, to give you new life now and eternal life with him in heaven one day. And if you've done that, Christian, my, my invitation to you this morning is, would you be like David in Psalm 139 this morning? Would you cry out, say, well, God, I don't know, but, but if there's pride in my life, however that's manifested, whether it's an arrogance and self-exaltation or whether it's a, an anxiety and self-doubt, search me, oh God. Try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way of me. Would you say, God, if there's even a shred of pride or any other sin that, that I'm allowing right now to fester in my life, would you ask God to show it to you and then tell him, I'm, I'm gonna leave it here. I'm gonna leave it here this morning. And would you make that a continued prayer? And because of temptation and deadly danger of pride, it's a continual threat. Maybe Satan has distracted you from, from the catalyst that God has given us, the word of God in your own discipleship process or in the discipling of your family or others that God has you ministering to. Uh, if your time in God's Word or if your use of God's Word has not, what it, not been what it should be, would you confess that this morning and then, and then commit to, with the Holy Spirit's help, reorient your methods, make them God's methods. Please, please see the critical importance. There is nothing, I mean, there is nothing else that will transform your life. There's no plan B. There's no alternate or parallel tool that God has designed his Holy Spirit to use in saving people and in molding them into the image of Jesus Christ. And I hope that we can commit as a church together this morning to always be a guard, on guard against pride, but also to be on guard against any deviations from being dependent on this catalyst that God wants us to use to be successful in our participation in his multiplication method. In faithfully fulfilling the Great Commission, will we commit to keep the main thing, the main thing, the Word of God? As Tommy comes to lead us uh, in a time to respond to the voice of God this morning, however the Holy Spirit's calling you, moving you to respond, I just ask that you'd obey.